Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome back to the Infinite Harmony Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Dragon. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation about the existence of Gaia. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode in the series, I recommend going back and giving it a listen, as we cover some fundamental ideas that set the stage for the conversation today. Or if you prefer, just jump on this thread and follow it down the rabbit hole to the wondrous world of Gaia. Today, we'll mostly be looking into the work of Stephen Herod Buner and his book, Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm. This book has touched me in so many different ways. In fact, when I began this podcast, I considered calling it the Golden Thread Podcast, but sadly, the name was taken. And, you know, us being the Church of Infinite Harmony probably ended up being a better choice. Anyway, I wanted the title to represent my experience with the work of studying philosophy and myth the following of these threads of knowledge to something beyond knowledge, to the felt sense of harmony with the universe. The idea of the golden threads is something that appears in Taoism, more often referred to as the golden path. As I was writing this and going through Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm, I rediscovered the chapter, Following the Golden Threads. It begins with this idea of following a feeling a feeling of being touched by the universe. The golden thread is what touches us. Coined by poet William Stafford, who was inspired by William Blake, whose own poem reads, I give you the end of a golden string, only to wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. The threads of knowledge that lead to heaven's gate, the place beyond knowledge, beyond knowing, Everything about this book is one of those threads for me. And I can say with certainty, was one of the first books that helped me to understand the view of the animist, whose work is in the place beyond knowing. The place where the felt sense of being pervades. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. The sensory experience of life and what it means to be alive. Reflecting on the sensory experience of life opens a door to understanding existence in a way that transcends the mere accumulation of human knowledge. It's about engaging the world in its rawest form, feeling its rhythms, and recognizing the interwoven nature of life through sensation. By opening our senses to nature, we experience the world not as a collection of inanimate objects and separate entities, but as a vibrant, living whole. It's a place where we can experience the aliveness of everything, from the tiniest blade of grass to the vast, sprawling Amazon forest. This perpetual shift is more profound than its description, and far more difficult to attain than one might think. It marks a departure from the analytical and often detached modes of understanding that dominate much of our interaction with the world. In exploring the imaginal realm and the intelligence of plants, Buner invites us to reconsider not only what it means to be alive, but also how we define intelligence and consciousness. As we discussed in the first episode of the series, plants, with their intricate networks of communication and symbiotic relationships, offer a model of existence that is both deeply connected and profoundly communicative. Their silent wisdom speaks to a form of knowledge that is not bound by language or human-centric concepts of cognition. Let's remind ourselves that life expresses itself in a myriad of forms, each with its own way of perceiving and engaging the world. By embracing the animist's work, this feeling beyond knowing, we open ourselves to a more empathetic and compassionate relationship with the natural world. It's a journey towards understanding that to truly know the world We must feel it, be part of it, recognize our place within the tapestry of life that envelops us. This is not just about expanding our intellectual horizons, but about deepening our capacity to experience and cherish the mystery and beauty of existence itself. So for today, and only today, welcome to the Golden Threads Podcast.
Early on in his book, Buner shares a story about an experience with his grandfather that stirred something deep inside me. A memory of certain experiences I had as a child that I had forgotten about. Experiences I would ask my friends about, and they would just look at me like I was weird. Experiences I dared not ask the adults about. When I read Buner's book, I no longer felt alone. Buner tells a story, and it goes like this. My grandfather was sitting at his desk, and I was walking along the hallway, going outside to play, when I caught a glimpse of him and stopped at the door of his room, hesitating tentatively on the threshold. Then, for some reason that day, my internal world quieted in a way I had never experienced. I became aware of a special quality to the sound of the room. Silence itself took on a penetrating, quiet sound of its own, like a word filled with deep meaning, which has reached out and touched the very foundations of the self. Every tiny noise emerging in that magical silence took on, itself, a special kind of sound, a special kind of meaning. It seemed to me that I could hear, truly hear, for the first time, the creak of the chair, the slight rustling of the drapes, the movement of my grandfather's hands among his papers, his breathing, and the simple, quiet susurrus of my own inhale and exhale. Each sound seemed almost to shimmer, and each and every one of them resonated deeply inside of me. I felt some kind of communication coming out of those sounds and into me. had very similar experiences as a child, seemingly random, where time would stop. I was always alone, and in those moments the silence that Buner describes would become deafening. A sensation would come over my body as if I were moving through time itself, almost water-like in its viscosity, like time became this thing in the room. I would become aware of my heartbeat, aware of my body, and aware of existence in a way that was entirely foreign and magical to my everyday life. Suddenly everything had meaning and purpose, yet I was too young to understand that meaning, only trust it. Everything felt safe and alive, and I felt together with the universe. There was nothing to understand. The only thing I could do was feel. And everything felt as it should be. These experiences, they became more and more rare as I grew older, and eventually they ceased altogether. In a conversation recently, I asked my 18-year-old niece if she'd ever experienced something like that as a child, something like an altered state of consciousness, specifically one where time felt different. She could remember feeling that way. It was a really interesting conversation. For her, it was almost like the world was reaching out and touching her. She said it was like a soft pressure on her skin, in addition to the strange lucidity and timelessness that accompanied it. Perhaps you remember such a thing. Perhaps at one point we've all experienced something like that. Buner, too, would later discover that he was not alone, quoting experiences written by the already-mentioned Stafford, by Manuel Cordova Rios, Henry David Thoreau, even Albert Hoffman, whom he quotes as saying, As I strolled through the freshly greened woods filled with the birdsong and lit up by the morning sun, all at once everything appeared in an uncommonly clear light. Was this something I had simply failed to notice before? Was I suddenly discovering the spring forest as it actually looked? It shone with the most beautiful radiance, speaking to the heart, as though it wanted to encompass me in its majesty. I was filled with an indescribable sensation of joy, oneness, and blissful security. This story of Albert Hoffman echoes the story of Buner himself and is the beginning of Buner's commentary on the social order, of human perception, and how it's become caged within the walls of our contracted senses, of the many faults of reductive science 
and on the deep and complex nature of plant and animal intelligence, and, of course, on the soul of Gaia herself. Now, before Buhner takes his inquiry into the nature of intelligence and perception beyond humans, he first takes us through a process of understanding what happened to our own perception in hope that we can return to the state he so eloquently describes as feeling as if we were part of a living, breathing, aware, intelligent universe. He illustrates the importance of staying connected to our environment, that in fact, every living organism has the means to sense and feel and connect to its environment, to take in information about its surroundings, and determine how to interact with literally everything around it. And it can differentiate between itself and what is outside of itself, and hence has a capacity for self-awareness. This is a trait we all too often solely associate with being human. This, he says, is one of the fundamental problems we have as a society. It is why we can clear-cut forests and decimate populations of fish and factory farm. It is why we externalize all of our waste and problems upon the environment, with little sense of what it does to us as a species. The problem with humans, he says, is that we've disconnected ourselves from everything around us. In order to reconnect with the sensations of this intelligent universe, he offers an idea that again took me back to my childhood and brought profound meaning to some of the challenges I've faced as a human who now lives in nature. As I've likely made it evident on this podcast, I'm from Chicago. Yo, what up, Chicago? Chicago? Chicago. I'm Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Now, this is a city of three million plus people. A city that is constantly moving and makes a ton of noise. So I grew up in this old two-story brick building, Richmond Street. Behind me was this three-story building with a dozen families and a slum landlord, for certain. Rampant with barking dogs, domestic disputes, televisions, blasting war movies, all of this, all night, every night. Never mind the sound of ambulances and helicopters and the constant flow of traffic on the major artery in our neighborhood, Irving Park. A moment of silence was impossibly rare. Now, how does one sleep in a place like this? When it's 90 degrees and you got your window open because you don't have AC in your room, well, if you've grown up in a city, you know the answer. You figure out how to block it all out. You just do. Now, if you haven't grown up in a city, imagine yourself in a busy cafe or a restaurant with a friend you haven't seen in a couple years. At best, you spend an hour or two focused on your friend, reminiscing about old lovers, good times, laughing, feeling connected. The whole time you're there, there's dozens of other conversations happening, right? People are drinking coffee or Aperol spritzers or slurping spaghetti or waiters are taking orders, espresso machines are going off, whatever. For the most part, you're oblivious to it all. But how? How do you do this? How is it that we live in a world that is bombarding us with sensory information, often louder than anything found in nature, and we're not just curled up in a ball on the floor trying to make it all stop. This ability we have is what Buner describes as sensory gating. He writes thoroughly about the signs of sensory flow and the chemicals involved, the role of the unconscious mind in filtering what is necessary stimulus, which is prioritized first and foremost with information we deem threatening, and stimulus that the brain considers novel. So, in other words, the stuff that you hear all the time, you tend to filter out. And if there's a lot of stuff that you hear all the time, you're doing a lot of filtering. Of course, there's a ton of variability in sensory gating in humans. We have the propensity to look for norms in this kind of thing and maybe label what we find outside the norm with hyper or hypo labels like attention deficit hyper disorder. But sensory gating and perception is fundamental to our development. And through various stages of being a conscious entity, it comes in handy. Buner's book provides an incredibly in-depth reasoning, cited information, and science behind his research, and I recommend reading the book. What's important about Buner's sensory gating observation is how it interferes with our relationship to the natural world, and how through conscious effort of attention, we can open our senses to the living communication of plants and animals once again, by accessing what he calls the metaphysical background of the world. 
So I have to admit, as a city kid, I have a heck of a time accessing the metaphysical background of the world. I've been doing a whole lot of sensory gating my whole life, and those subtle senses, the ones that can pick up on the essence of the plants, their vibrations, their movement, their shift, their change. Yeah, that's tough. But that's what we do. We cultivate attention. Now, I expect we'll talk a lot about attention in this podcast as a superpower of consciousness and one of the most effective ways to develop ourselves as humans. Buner describes three methods or practices of opening the sensory gates to the metaphysical background of the world, all requiring our attention and overriding our habituated templates of perception that we've become used to. The first method involves, quote, focusing on a specific task that demands greater sensory sensitivity, end quote. And here, Buner uses the example of sitting next to a plant and focusing on all the minutia of its detail, colors, shapes, qualities, and most importantly, how it feels. So let's pause here for a moment. How often have you asked yourself, how does this plant feel? How many times have you attempted to experience the feeling of something that doesn't seem to be in an emotional state? The mystical ability of empathy in humans seems simple in comparison. Of course, we can see and interpret the emotions of other humans by the way they look, their actions, and our nervous systems, they regulate or empathize with other humans. We feel them. But a plant? A rock? The wind? A fire hydrant? This ability to feel Mother Earth, our planet, to feel the vibrations and essence of all that surrounds us. This is the beginning of developing a deep knowing that our planet is far more than just a mechanistic, inanimate structure or a series of events that happenstance life. This planet is caring for us, all of us. It is alive. So somewhere down the road, I'm planning to do a series on the architect and animist Christopher Alexander and his magnum opus, The Nature of Order. In all honesty, I'm, I'm still working my way through it. Alexander is one of the more interesting and esoteric architects I've ever encountered. Not that I, you know, like go to architect meetups or anything, but... Do you want to go back to uh, you know, my place and play Legos? Anyway, his first book... Much like Buner, he deeply discusses and takes us through a process of looking at inanimate objects and asking how they feel. To Alexander, this is the key to building a world worth living in. He accesses the metaphysical background of the built world so that his creations better reflect the true essence of our humanity. And, also like Buner, Alexander dissuades us from the reductive thinking of efficiency and time preference over a deeper connection to the world we inhabit. He begs us to rethink architecture from the perspective of feeling. Now, anyone who's lived in an old city and watched the older brick and graystone buildings replaced with these modern, clean, square-paneled monoliths, void of any sense of aesthetic, like I have, you can relate to this. There are some places that just feel right. Old brick in the cold cities of the north, Shiplap craftsman houses on the Atlantic coast. A place has a feeling to it, a life, and it guides us to build what is already there, waiting in the ethers to be built. But Buner, he's not just asking us to consider our dwellings or sidewalks, but everything. The feeling of a natural world that, at first glance, we may not consider to even have feelings. So again, Buner walks us through an exercise. If you care to, you're welcome to do it now. Take a pause. It goes like this. Let your eyes wander around the room you're in until something catches your attention. If you're not in a room, find an object, a desk, 
a pen, a cup, a steering wheel. It doesn't matter what it is. It is just for whatever reason at this moment in time interesting to you. It appeals in some way. Now, look at it carefully. Note its shape. Note its color. Really look at it. Let your visual sensing take it in. Let your eyes touch the thing as if they were fingers capable of extreme sensitivity. Immerse yourself in seeing the thing that has caught your attention. Now, ask yourself, how does it feel? In the tiny moment of time that follows that question, there will be a burst of feeling. Did you notice it? Your non-physical touching has just felt a part of the exterior world. There's a specific and unique feeling experience that occurs whenever this question is asked about something that is acutely observed. What stands revealed is a dimension to things beyond height, width, and breadth. There's a feeling dimension to them. The secret kinesis of things. Welcome back. Now, Buner says, as you immerse yourself in the essence of how your object feels, ask yourself, how do I feel? He asks us to notice these sensations as we move from feeling what is outside of us to noticing how the thing makes us feel. One might suggest a parallel to the yogic practices of meditation and contemplation, where the practitioner attempts to feel the qualities of a single point of concentration until there is no differentiation between what is outside and what is inside. This seemingly mystic yogic ability is hopefully an idea we will revisit again and again. That the distinction between the self and the environment is actually an illusion. That the distinction between outside and inside are just a matter of perception. And not just in a philosophical space. Did he just say philosophical? Yes, I just said philosophical. And not just in a philosophical space, but also in a physical space. Where does the outside end and the inside begin? Is it your skin? Is not the air you inhale and exhale a perfect metaphor for the illusory nature of the experience? The point is that we could not exist without the environment just as we could not exist without lungs or air to breathe with the lungs. The more we can dispel the myth that there is an out there, that we are somehow separate from the trees we cut down for our houses and the fish we eat for dinner, that our garbage is essentially not our problem because it goes out there somewhere where we can't see it, that every organism and entity on this planet is essential to our existence. The closer we will get to experiencing the metaphysical nature of our world, and the closer to harmony we will feel in these bodies here on Earth. Feel free to pause and play with that exercise all you like. Once we can grasp our capacity to intertwine our feeling state with the natural world around us, to dissolve the environment, and feel into just how deeply we are a part of all living things around us, we will experience the deeper mysticism of this intelligence that is life on Earth. We become comfortable with these shifts in consciousness, and consciousness itself as a variable state, moving through the waking and dreaming, through gated and non-gated sensory perceptions, through being of the world and within it. Specifically, we begin to understand what Buner calls Gaia's mind and the dreaming of Earth. He begins by discussing the very idea of reading and writing as a shift in consciousness. In one of the more remarkably simple yet astute ideas of the book, he takes us through a process of reading passages of some of his favorite authors and tuning into the felt senses of the writing 
noticing how his sensory gates open to the experience of the writing and of the writer. The authors, he says, learn to combine the visual and felt senses into a sensory medium known as synesthesia. To illustrate, I'd like to read a passage from one of my all-time favorite works of literature, A Winter's Tale, by Mark Halperin. In this scene I'm about to read, a benevolent business tycoon in New York City is showing a painting to a handful of guests, including the mayor. The artist's name is unknown, and the painting, well, as you'll see, it's not an ordinary painting. It goes like this. The painting was of a city at night, as seen from above, and though they recognized some things they knew, most of it was unfamiliar, because there were lights by the billions, actually sparkling, moving along distant roads in thick concentrations, the likes of which the viewers had never imagined, moving along the rivers and through the air. The city they saw looked real, of inconceivable scale, and frighteningly like their own. One woman nearly fainted when, upon close examination, she saw a tiny pair of legs scurrying along under an open umbrella. They were able to see in perfect detail. The bridges, of which there were hundreds, had lighted and glowing buildings suspended from their cantonaries and stacked upon the roadways as on the Ponte Vecchio. The view changed, and suddenly, as if they were flying past it, they felt like birds gliding above quiet streets and deep canyons that were mysteriously three-dimensional. They experienced a pleasurable vertigo, like that of walking on a country road in the fall as torrents of leaves float in a rush of wind, flooding the air with new depth, putting the scene underwater and banishing gravity. This city enabled anyone who looked at it from afar to soar above it, to rise effortlessly, to know that despite its labyrinthian divisions, it was an appeal to heaven, simpler in the end than the blink of an eye. Notice now where your mind and body were just then. If you, just like the characters in the book, were flying across a painted city, transported into a two-dimensional painting that became alive, were you there? Could you feel it? Buner asks us to observe how we not only see in our mind's eye what is being described, or feel in our mind's eye what's being described, but literally transport ourselves into the writer's world and feel what is there. It's like the writing becomes another reality. Certainly, anyone who has read a good book knows the feeling of being transported inside the writing, into the world as if a dream, forgetting entirely where your body actually is, be it sinking into your own comfortable couch or crammed into an airplane for hours. Winter's Tale is one of my favorite books because it is a book that so accurately and magically describes New York City as a place, but asks us to draw out the metaphysical background of the city in every paragraph. The author Helprin is also asking us to see beyond the ordinary into the secret kinesis of the city and its inhabitants, of the great rivers and bays that surround it, of the Atlantic mists that engulf it. When we have these experiences with writing, Buner says we are experiencing the opening of our gating channels, and this opening of our gating channels is an alteration in consciousness, and that it's quite natural, akin to a dream. A writer is dreaming the scenes we read just as we dream the scenes written. The writer feels the scene and its characters and places and imbues the writing with those feelings. Buner goes on to draw the same comparisons in music. He writes, quote, A good songwriter crafts the melody line of a song in such a way that the emotional structure of the sound progression mirrors the lyrics of the song. The emotional tones in the melody mimic the meaning of the story that the lyrics tell. So, at a level far below that of language, the feeling of the story goes inside you into very deep dreaming places. 
into a place where your deepest feelings reside. And there it changes who you are, just as all good stories do. Because music bypasses the linear mind, using non-linguistic sound structures rather than the more structured language you find in books. It bypasses many of the filters that culture imposes on people." End quote. As a musician myself, I've experienced what he means, and can say that music has moved me in feeling even more than writing. There is nothing more mystical than embarking into an unknown jam session with accomplished musicians, listening and responding in this language that has nothing to do with words, whose meaning cannot be precisely defined, but only felt to the core. How does one define or explain a melody line or a guitar solo? I mean, if there's any Fish fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. Hopefully I'm not throwing myself under the bus here as some neo-hippie, but I've been a fan since the 90s, and despite having heard some songs dozens of times, the band never plays the song the same. Each show is a unique expression of a different quality or feeling of each song played. It's like watching a movie where there's a rough idea of the script, but every time you see it, the lines change. The scene is kind of the same. Music tugs on our heartstrings like nothing else. We all know how certain songs can take us back to the dreaming of our childhood, becoming forever associated with a time or place or person. I mean, I don't think I'll ever hear the Doobie Brothers without thinking of my dad or hear Under the Bridge and not think of my first party at a friend's house in 8th grade. To Buner, this is just another example of the feeling state that lies at the core of our perception, beyond the rational mind and linear thought. He gives a great example of how music can be beyond explanation with the word funk. Here's a little James Brown coming your way, baby, help me. Deep down in this Chicago boy lies a whole heap of funk. But what is funk? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Get up, get on up, get up, get on up. But to sit here and describe or explain it without diving into some deep metaphor about purple velvet or swagger or saxophones and 70s Cadillacs with my face all scrunched up like a really happy and gassy at the same time still doesn't even explain it. You can't notate funk on sheet music because it can't be reduced to notes and timing and descriptions. It's pure feeling. It's from these places, these dreams, that we reach the secret kinesis of the world and its metaphysical background. Can you feel what we're talking about here? Our ability as humans to dream and speak beyond language to transport our consciousness to other worlds through books, music, storytelling. Where are we when we dream? If aliens came down and saw humans sleeping everywhere, would they know we were alive? We live even in our dreams, don't we? Imagine that the Earth is in a perpetual state of dream, even in her waking. Can you touch her dream? Can you sense it? Can you feel it? When you ask how a plant feels or a rock and allow that state to touch your own, secrets unravel. We enter a new state of being. It's from these places, these dreams, that we reach the secret kinesis of the world and its metaphysical background. We reach the realm of the Fae, of London below, of the Upside Down, we use the porpentine to find the land, walk through the closet into Narnia. We tumble down the rabbit hole. We discover the door to Midworld. We find that worlds exist just beyond the veil of reality where we so often reside. And from there, we travel with a newfound sense of feeling from and for the world and our relationship to everything in it. It's from this place that Buner invites us to find a deeper meaning to our experience and what he calls a metaphorical language to describe them. He begins the chapter called The Sea of Meaning with a few quotes, one of which by Manasobu Fukuoka, where he is quoted to say, Everyone seems to believe that human thought and emotions are the products of the human mind. 
But I think otherwise. When people see a green tree, they all think that green trees are beautiful. Trees leave a sense of peace. When the wind ripples on the surface of the water, the spirit becomes restless. Go to the mountains, and a sense of the mountain arises. Travel to a lake, and one feels the spirit of the water. All these emotions arise from nature. Go anywhere nature has been disturbed, and I doubt that anything but disturbed emotions will arise. End quote. So what is it to find the meaning within our feeling states? Well, it begins by noticing how the places and beings around us make us feel when we take the time to feel them, to sense them. Now, we've mostly talked about opening our sensory gates to experience beauty in the world. But the world is built upon the polarities of existence. And as we've discussed, we must inevitably open ourselves to all aspects of our living world. To illustrate, I'll read another scene from Winter's Tale, one that elicits an entirely different feeling from that of the first. On a late spring morning, Peter Lake went to the nearest tenement door and swung it open, expecting to see, as if from a high hill, a great city in winter laid out before him in a cold dawn. Someday, perhaps, he would. But now there was only darkness and a sickening smell. He cautiously negotiated the flight of stairs and came to a landing. Cord and twine had been tied all about the banisters. Children playing, he thought. He saw in the blackness that the dark walls were scratched and gouged. This was a horrible place, far from water, sky, or sand. He would have left and forgotten it had he not for some reason been compelled to go up one more flight of stairs. He was in the heart of the building now, far away from the light as if he had been in a deep grave. He was just about to turn around when suddenly he became motionless, with the graceful and quick self-restraint of a hunter who had stumbled upon his prey. A child stood before him. Not an ordinary child, or so he hoped. He could not have been more than three or four, and was dressed in a filthy black smock. Its head was enormous, shaven, distorted. The brows and crown protruded as if to burst, and back it was the same. Peter Lake winced. This creature, standing in the rubble, had its hand in its mouth and was leaning against the wall, staring blankly ahead. Its jaws trembled, and the hideous swollen skull rocked back and forth in convulsive movements. Peter Lake's instincts told him that there was not much life left for it to live. He wanted to help, but he had no experience or memory to guide him. He could neither leave nor stay. He watched it shake and bob in the near darkness until, somehow, he fell reeling back into the light. Though this is just another scene in a helper novel, we know all too well that this scene is commonplace in our world. You know, the first time I went to Peru, I spent a day in the city of Pucallpa. Though this large and fairly poor city is far from the worst place to live on Earth, being in a radically novel place, unlike any city in America, my gates were wide open, and the feeling of the place was strange and uncomfortable. The makeshift dwellings and businesses, garbage rolling through the streets, everything just a shade of broken, and the chaos of all the moto taxis and cars. At the time, it was not what I would call beautiful. Of course, I could appreciate the culture, the people, the resilience, the simplicity, the tender hearts. And though I looked through the lens of a middle-class American, beyond the lens was a feeling of internal disharmony. Rare was their attended garden, or an elegant sense of design or pattern. It was just this sprawling city, and the waste that a city brings. Certainly here in North America we can find the same feelings. Walking the now abandoned project tenements of my home in Chicago, driving through the massive cow factories of the Central Valley, 
the monocrops growing in what was once the Mesopotamia of our continent and watching it slowly erode into a waterless desert. Compare the feeling of a garbage-ridden dead-end alley to a sequoia, a sprawling airport to a vast field of Yosemite. We must learn to map our feelings of the entirety of our existence here on Gaia and be willing to develop a complete sense of seeing and feeling the deeper realities available to us. In this way, we touch the world with something deeper than our hands and feel, and we let the world touch us. When I was a kid, I wanted nothing more than to be able to talk to animals. I wanted a secret language with them. I wanted to be able to make eagles land on my shoulder and tigers come sitting at my feet. Admittedly, as a child, it felt more like a desire to have command over them. But as I got older, I realized what I desired even more was friendship with the natural world. And even the power that we do have through our animal husbandry, just it's kind of missed the mark, right? Even more than that, I just wanted to feel like I wasn't alone in the universe. Humans have done quite well at declaring their independence from each other. We've declared our autonomy and we've discovered our unique expression as a self-reflective being. But in doing so, I think we often feel utterly alone. I mean, how many times have you had that feeling? The one that's like, no one understands me. Or no one really gets it the way I do. I mean, honestly, I feel like this all the time, despite how many friends I have and close relationships and seemingly parallel views. The idea that nature can reach out and touch us, that it's intelligent, alive, and with us on this journey, that is the very substance I crave, the one that fills the void created by a human-centric world. Now, to reach this state, we must abandon the idea that the world exists primarily for humans. To this, Buner writes, quote, We literally can't see the deeper dimensions of Earth if we remain in a human-oriented frame. For we tend to think that the oil in California hills is, and has always been, there for us. We believe that there is something unique about our intelligence, that we, and our billions, are intrinsically more important than the plants that grow in our yard. Foundationally, the thinning of the boundary between the self and the other is crucial. The complete elimination of it is, at times, a necessity. It is only then that it is possible to experience the other inhabitants of this scenario from inside their own lives. Understanding emerges only at such moments that the human world and its concerns are as unimportant to the other life forms here as the mosquito you just swatted is to you. It changes things. For the first time, the arrogance of the human perspective vanishes. It's possible, then, to see just how thoroughly it biases nearly every aspect of science, and how much it alters nearly every human intervention into the ecological functioning of the planet. End quote. This is the door to what Buner calls the imaginal realm and the dreaming of Earth. You know, here at the Church of Infinite Harmony, we ordain land stewards. Our ministers dedicate themselves to the preservation of all beings in the Gaian system, from the largest to the smallest. If I were to describe their divine power, it would be to see beyond the deeper patterns of the natural world and become a co-creator in Gaia's elegant design. Land stewards choose their place in the world, and they learn that place. As the senior land steward of Liberty Arising, one of my hopes is to someday drive back some of the overbearing invasive species that have overtaken the land and allow the native California chaparral to regain its foothold in our fields. When I feel into the mustard weeds, the foxtails, the ragweeds, there's a deep felt sense of this army marching into my home unwanted, attempting to install their own culture over ours. When I leave these fields and ascend into the hills of the chaparral to the east, the mosaic of California sagebrush, ribbonwood trees, the myriad of wildflowers, and most of all, 
the ancient coast live oaks, beckons my soul to sit down and share a story, to learn their ways and offer mine. I feel home with them. I feel as if we are kin. Curare is a common name for a collection of South American alkaloid aeropoisons that would eventually be used by the North American Brethren in the 1940s as the first anesthesia. Like many medicines in South America, it was used by various tribes, and each tribe had its own recipe depending on the region. The plants used would vary. Some tribes would use as many as a dozen plants to create these paralytic poisons. They also had remarkable healing properties for certain infections. There are a handful of quotes from South American medicine men when initially asked how it became known that such a combination of plants would have a desired effect. The answer was simply, the plants told us. How did humans ever deduce the healing properties of thousands of plants across hundreds of ancient cultures without microscopes and lab coats? And how did we get to a society where now our medicines have gone from teas and poultices made of real plants to pills and bottles of pink stuff that tastes like bubblegum? Arguably the strangest substance to ever be called food. When did the answer to our ailment cease to be just outside our back door and only be available by prescription? Granted, the refinement of modern medicine by science has saved countless lives, but these technologies are not exclusive to pharmaceuticals, and more importantly, not as arcane as they would like us to believe. Look, the point is not to rant about Big Pharma here. There's plenty of other podcasts and pundits who will tell you that. It's to remind ourselves that long before we relied on specialists and medical authorities to tell us how to take care of ourselves, we spoke to the plants. They've been helping us for thousands of years, but we've also been helping them. One day I was staring at the 10-acre field on the north side of our property, where the mustard weeds were in full bloom for the third time this season, depriving the soil of essential nitrogen and creeping upward towards the chaparral. I looked to the west at a community of sagebrush that had held their ground and I noticed something. Everywhere the land was flat, the invasive dominated, and everywhere there was just some topography be it a mound or a swale or a more obvious change in elevation, the chaparral remained strong. It was as if I could suddenly see into the past, and I watched the humans run their machines and level these massive fields, likely for their horses to graze in or run. I knew the land was a horse ranch in prior iterations, or maybe farmed generations back, not sure. What I could see now was that the altering of the land had changed things. It had taken me 10 years of gently staring into the metaphysical background of this field to see the connections between things and the flow of time that binds them. You know, the land steward trains themselves to build what Buner calls a perceptual database through a continual touching of the world through our feeling sense. And what we master through this training is an understanding of the complexity of life, of Gaia, and of ourselves as an emergent property of our Mother Earth. We become agents of Gaia and agents of the creative forces that drive us. When we look at it that way, when we truly grasp the undeniable creative synergy that we are capable of, that our success can only be measured by the health and success of our planet, then we are compelled to move with her and not against her, to ask the question of what it truly means to move with her, to see her and be seen by her, to express her will as ours. It almost sounds a little religious, and perhaps it is, but at the same time, it is an ultimate expression of freedom freedom of the utterly unique set of feelings and perceptions that we carry, married to a great set of feelings carried deep within the dreaming of the earth.
next episode, we'll embark on the final leg of our trilogy and ask the question, if the Earth is in fact alive, is it possible that we humans are a part of a much greater ecological plan? I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you. As always, feel free to ask questions or offer feedback in our forum at infiniteharmony.org, which will include the transcripts of each episode for quotes and references. The idea is, at some point, I'd like to hear what it is that you want to hear, things you're curious about. What does the Church of Infinite Harmony mean to you? Let's talk about it. A special shout out to all the musicians who helped make this show. Thanks to Maddie and Mattia for some live in-studio vocal harmonies, for the infamous Don Gato, to Zan and the Audiomancy Caravan, to Coyote, Azira, and my new friend Canton Becker, and all the musicians making royalty-free music at SampleSwap.org. Please check out all the links to our musicians in the show notes. If you're interested in supporting this podcast or our work, you can become a donating member of the Church of Infinite Harmony. You can donate any amount you want, once a month or as often as you want. As a nonprofit organization, this podcast and our organization are supported by your donations. So please, go to our website, infiniteharmony.org, or check out the show notes where you can find a direct link for donations. Thank you for your support. Thanks for listening. Peace.